Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Small Screen Matinee. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Stuart Classic Films. I'm Trevor Lawton. Coming up next on our month-long salute to screen legend Barbara Ritter, we have what most consider the greatest romantic psychological drama ever produced and one of my personal favorites. From Cowan Pictures in 1954, directed by Otto Schlesinger, it's The Ghosts of Weatherby Manor. Produced by Roy B. Dandridge and based on the 1940 Dorothy Addison novel bearing the same name, Ritter plays a New York fashion journalist sent to Maine on assignment to cover a reclusive French designer at his seaside mansion, played by silent film veteran Jack Humphrey, in what would be his final role alive. In 1977, Humphrey's corpse appeared in the low-budget independent science fiction horror film They Walk Again, shot on the actor's native Irish soil after the filmmaker stole his body from its tomb in Belleton Derry. Ritter's character is quickly taken by the charismatic dressmaker and, while questioning her own feelings, soon finds that the memories of Humphrey's former romances remain alive and well within the halls of his sprawling old-world manor, which has fallen into a state of disrepair, I might add. One particular presence, most famously felt in the stairwell portrait of Humphrey's late and most recent wife, his seventh wife, in fact, now, the enchantingly eerie and equally iconic portrait, referred to in the film as the portrait of Jacqueline, was painted by studio contract artist Calvin Joyce as a favor to Dandridge for an early morning pickup following a rowdy steak dinner at Herman's in Hollywood. Joyce also painted the portrait of the Osborne family's beloved spotted setter Tilly from the 1948 Robert Robinson production, Caring for Tilly and would go on to supply the paintings for former SS officer and South American hiding Jürgen Maxwell in 1966, a saunter over a certain ridge. Paintings that, interestingly enough, were bought in the 1970s by an anonymous Argentine art collector. Now, it was while in production on Red Alley two years earlier, when producer Roy B. Dandridge was handed a copy of the book by his mistress as a cautionary gesture. Dandridge was spellbound by the story, particularly the designer's obsession, often conveyed through a series of long, transfixed gazes during the character's many late-night reveries portrayed so poetically in the novel. Jack Humphrey's striking, silent-screen presence was a no-brainer. Dandridge campaigned for months seeking the rights to the property, and despite the studio's eagerness, there was one holdout, the book's author, Dorothy Addison who by 1952 was invalid and confined to her West Sag home. Dandridge wined and dined the bed-stricken author, preparing her a lavish tray of prescribed delicacies nestled next to the studio's offer and a pen, which Dandridge held for the weak and dying novelist, who at the time was too ill even to speak. Production began the following week with a script that was already being developed behind the scenes by screenwriter Sam Stevens 
who had previously penned the film adaptations for Moybridge Station and Where Crimson Wings Fall in 1948, both under Cowan, with the former featuring a young Elliot Renee, who appears in the film we're about to see. It's a small role and arrives early, but Renee's signature snappy cadence is well represented here as Ritter's editor. Not to mention Stevens' original script for Mary the Blonde from 1953, of which he took home the Oscar, just one year before Weatherby Manor, which Stevens, in his later life, admitted was his favorite and most stimulating script. And for those of you spending the day with us, we just finished watching Pangs of Lilith, Dandridge's third and final film with Barbara Ritter coming in 1957. Their first collaboration, however, was in 1950 on Cage Saddle, the film noir western which received four Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Cinematography for Cecil Beers, which we have on the schedule for later this month here on Stewart Classic Films. So when The Ghosts of Weatherby Manor came up, Dandridge didn't have to think too hard on his leading lady. Now, as Ritter's and Humphrey's characters fall passionately in love, culminating courtesy of what is easily considered the film's most memorable romantic scene, with Ritter and Humphrey's iconic terror-soaked embrace and trembling kiss against the rocky cliff shore and towering ocean spray that surrounds them as Ritter's character cycles through the various presences that seem to be compelling her. A scene made even more vivid by the film's haunting score provided by the great Leonard Mosby, whose work on Weatherby Manor earned him the Oscar. And rightly so. His spectral and otherworldly arrangement remains an equal and lasting element of the film, conjured in most cases by the mere mention of the film's title. Considered one of the greatest on-screen kisses of all time, the scene took over nine months to shoot and was a miserable experience for the two actors. Ritter later told Gossip Queen Mamie Dickers that what appears on the surface to be her vibrant, rosy complexion is nothing more than what Ritter called sea-chapped cheeks. And although makeup artist Lonnie Westmore took credit for Ritter's sultry glow in her celebrated industry memoir years later, the reality is that famous blush was the work of Mother Nature. Dealing with ever-changing weather conditions and an eye for perfection, the film's director, visual master Otto Schlesinger, shot over 600 takes of the immortal kiss using no stand-ins, and was photographed entirely on location, busting the long-standing myth that it was shot on a stage using two gaffers. Throughout his entire career, Schlesinger held the reputation of being an authoritarian, a temperament that served the quality of his pictures well. His social game was another story. Known for carrying around town a compact bullhorn, which he generally used when speaking to service folk, as well as in every marital bed he shared over the years, Slazenger sacrificed nothing under the authority of his own vision, and often held up production for days at a time to partake in meditative reflection. Employing a discipline so intense, Slazenger was actually pronounced legally dead thrice during the film's production with the director coming to one of the times, only to find himself in a Hollywood morgue. Production resumed that afternoon. The experience would eventually inspire Slazinger's definitive suspense picture, the sardonically titled Curbside Delivery in 1961, known by its studio title, Paralysis. However, 1954 was a busy year for Otto Slazinger. In addition to this afternoon's film, he delivered four other pictures that same year. Silent Narrator, Celeste, 
with Meryl Taylor in the title role, The Florida City Story, and Viva Rio. To help explore the dark, subconscious depths of the film's subject matter, Slazinger enlisted the hyper-realistic imagery of surrealist painter Luciano Salamander to design what was pitched to him as an uncredited dream sequence to accompany the Dorothy Addison classic. Though his unmistaken themes can't be missed, dripping moons wearing bowler hats, exposing gears and other mechanical workings in place for facial features, extremely long-legged birds and loaves of saturated bread spread across the mansion's nightmarishly long dining room table, where Ritter's character finds herself at one end, seated with the fashion designer's not-so-long-forgotten lovers in a truly terrifying scene. Assembled using strobing bursts of brilliant technicolor and ghostly superimpositions, images of tarnished silver with a rotten, seemingly endless feast ravished by worms and maggots, loaded with grave symbolism and all the celebrated marks associated with Salamander, laying the groundwork for another unforgettable instance where Mosby's score shines and accentuates Ritter's psychological torment. With co-stars Clifton Quinn as the young architect living up the shoreline, as well as Eleanor Fane, Vivian Patrick, and Libby Hoyt, each of whom, before the events of the film, met a tragic fate following their time with the eccentric fashion designer. And featuring a fresh-faced, up-and-coming June Thatcher in only her second role, years before finding small-screen fandom with The June Thatcher Show in 1962, which was followed by a number of less successful title series. It's June in 1968, June in 1975, and What Now June in 1984. But in the film coming up, Thatcher plays Ritter's kid sister home from college for the summer, who's invited up to Maine for the week to visit her sister and meet, of course, her new love interest. It doesn't take Thatcher long to realize something's up with Sis, an assertion confirmed during her famous afternoon stroll with Ritter and a feverish scene high above the crashing waves where Ritter's character slowly and inexplicably grabs her sister by the shoulders and leans her carelessly over the side after Humphrey's character displays an immediate attraction to Thatcher. It's a scene of sheer panic brought to life by an exceptional performance by, at the time, a virtually unknown Thatcher. Though with her first role as Rosalind Shaw's kid sister in the musical comedy Forever Sweetheart, released just one month before Weatherby Manor, Thatcher had already proven promising, to say the least. But it would be her role in today's film that provided the young talent her breakout performance. And like their possession-fueled on-screen vine for Humphrey's affection, shown later in the film, Tension between Ritter and Thatcher quickly spilled over onto the set when the production's publicity began favoring the newcomer over the season's star. Forever Sweetheart was a box office success for Cowan and featured two scenes that were hit with, well, college males. Firstly, an innocent scene in the kitchen where Thatcher is squeezing lemons and gets some in her eye. A hilarious gag reused in the famous grapefruit episode of the June Thatcher show which was, of course, modified due to Cowan's ownership of the lemon use. And secondly, a scene with Thatcher doing vocal mouth exercises during a finishing school pronunciation course. Fan letters flooded the Cowan mailroom, and June Thatcher was fast-tracked into the marketing buzz of Weatherby Manor. 
The film's most sensual scene, featuring Thatcher in a nightgown standing in the moonlight of Humphrey's bedroom, was, unlike her previous work, subject to a great deal of scrutiny from the censors. It wasn't the nightgown they took issue with, but the warm glass of milk Thatcher is holding. When viewed under the microscope of the production code, the milk, and its position near Thatcher's bust, was seen as suggestive. Working closely with set designer Bess Lender and director of photography William Howell, Slazenger found a particularly, well, creepy technique for isolating both Ritter and Thatcher from their backgrounds while they lose more and more of themselves to the unseen spirits of Humphrey's past as the film progresses. All of which is complemented brilliantly with Ritter and Thatcher being draped in moldy, deteriorated evening gowns by costume designer Sue Sellers. Decision that initially didn't sit well with the film's producer, Roy B. Dandridge, who didn't take to the idea of his female lead or her young co-star looking, at one point in the film, like a, quote, stained porcelain swamp goon heading to the spring formal. Also worthy of mention is the film's significant title sequence by illustrator and optical effects artist Louise Blair, who by the end of her career had designed a total of five opening credit sequences for Otto Slazinger, including Long Distance Murder, The Cunning Mr. Webster Wallace, and A Short Ride Through Liberty County with Jimmy Brennan in 1962. Aided by the vast and stunning photography of William Howell, along with camera operator Earl Lawton, my first cousin, two generations removed, the old mansion and its surrounding landscape together serve as arguably the film's central character, with the majority of its sweeping day-for-night establishing exteriors covered entirely by the second unit, with Nathan Russell at the helm. Film loader Dickie Raskus, whose work on other notable productions, Shadows and Heat, and the Gloria Andrews comedy Ain't Fame Funny in 1951, would go on to work with Earl Lawton, alongside first Eugene Edmonds on every film after Weatherby Manor, until a falling out in 1979, following an 800-foot mag of licorice fed through the camera on Richard Barris's production of Space Safari. One of those legendary Hollywood tales, with Edmonds as the saboteur. Payback for Raskus and Lawton stealing Edmonds's hat and holding it above his head before hanging it on a street post during the trio's triple date with the Lana sisters, which took several weeks to arrange. And yep, this one happened. All 800 feet of it. Until their deaths, each occurring in the same year, 1987, the three would maintain separately that Weatherby Manor was their proudest work. During the film's gripping climax, while a freak storm rips the manor apart, shingle by shingle, board by board, during what can only be explained as the meteorological manifestation of Humphrey's hauntings, it's Clifton Quinn's character as the neighbor that saves Ritter and her sister, leaving the prominent dressmaker to the rubble remains of which he created now still and silent. With best boy duties from Pat Wade and a Cowan front office girl who, prior to the production, had been with the studio for several years, but by the time Weatherby Manor rolled around, was looking for something new. In the end, Ritter returned to New York to finish the feature and continue on with her life, putting the entire episode behind her. With surprises around every corner, filled with shocking twists and plot points mentioned here in their entirety, by Cowan Pictures, 
with script supervisor Madeline Heathrow and catering by hot box meals of Hollywood from 1954, The Ghosts of Weatherby Manor. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.